0: Today on Something You Should Know, are springtime allergies bothering you? I've got some great advice for that. Then, should you judge people by how they use the English language? Because the language is always changing.
1: If you listen to young people, you will hear them say, for example, who is your team versing tomorrow? And by that they mean, who is your team playing against? You can either get annoyed about it, or you can think, this is completely fascinating.
0: Plus, is it better that kids question authority or follow the rules? And making important changes in your life, why is it so hard?
2: It's hard because we logically want to, but we subconsciously don't. Change represents loss of of your identity, loss of who you currently are, and even if that change is good and for the better, you're still
0: feeling the loss. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome. Do you suffer from allergies? I do. Uh, And it seems like everybody is allergic to something in the air. And springtime can be particularly tough on allergy sufferers. Allergist Dr. Clifford Bassett has some steps you can take to lessen the impact of all of those things that are causing your allergies to flare up this spring. His first recommendation is don't vacuum. Get somebody else to do it, and if you have to do it, wear a mask. Pollen gets tracked in on our clothes and shoes, and vacuuming really stirs that up. Next, replace your air filter in your furnace and air conditioning unit. It's worth your while to pay a little more for a good one. The good ones really do filter out pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and debris. You should mow your lawn often. It's best if you can get someone else to do it, but mowing often helps disperse and reduce the effects of pollen. And he recommends that you wash your hair at night. It's probably full of pollen, and you don't want to then put that all over your pillow. And that is something you should know. What's so interesting to me about the English language that you and I speak and write is that at any point in time, we like to think that there is such a thing as proper English. Words, phrases, punctuation, they're either correct or they're incorrect. And yet, as you look back in time, English has always been in a state of change. New words and phrases and grammar come into the language and old words and phrases and grammar disappear. Even still, I am one of those people who's a bit of a stickler. I like it when words are spelled and pronounced correctly. I like good grammar. And one of the reasons I like good grammar is because I think people judge you by how you use the language. And I think you communicate your thoughts and ideas better if you use the language correctly. But there are people who are less strict about the whole thing including my guest, Anne Curzan. She is a professor of English, Linguistics, and Education at the University of Michigan, and she teaches a series of online courses in English and Grammar for The Great Courses. Hey Anne, welcome.
1: Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Now, I know there are people who are concerned about English. The phrase you often hear is that someone has butchered the English language that as English seems to change, it seems to change for the worse. Do you agree?
1: I am delighted to report as a linguist that English is fine, despite the rumors, to the contrary, that terrible things are happening. What I love about that is that if you go back a hundred years and you see what people were complaining about in English that they thought was terrible, for example, people didn't like the verb donate when it came in, or Ben Franklin thought that when the noun notice became the verb notice that was horrible and we look at that and we think what is their problem and i try to keep that perspective when people are saying to me i hate it when young people are using this slang word one of the new ones is young people who are using the verb verse and i can explain that if you want me to but people say this is terrible And I say, you know, in 50 years, we're going to look really quaint that we thought that was a bad thing.
0: How do they use verse that is so objectionable?
1: If you listen to young people, and this seems to be happening across the United States, you will hear them say, for example, who is your team versing tomorrow? And by that they mean, who is your team playing against? And if you think about what kids have done, you can either get annoyed about it, or you can think, this is completely fascinating. Because if you think about the Yankees versus the Dodgers or Serena versus Venus Williams, if you just hear that, that sounds a lot like tonight Serena plays Venus. And if versus is a verb, well, then you can have versed people. You can ask, who are you versing? In other words, kids have taken this Latin versus and reinterpreted it as a verb.
0: But aren't there things that bother you? Are, is it all just all okay? And one day we'll all just be saying that. Or do, do you know what really bothers me is when people say realtor, especially realtors when they say realtor. There's only two syllables in the world word, but a lot of people make it three. And for some reason, <laughs> I don't know why. For some reason, that really bothers me. And I don't think that's ever well. It. I mean, people do it, but I don't think it's acceptable. Do you?
1: Before I answer that question, which I may opt out of answering, uh, let me, I think we have a couple questions on the table. One is, are there things that happening in the language that I don't like? And the answer is, sure. I'm very open about the fact that I do not like the word impactful. I think it is ugly. How do you feel about impactful?
0: <laughs> I've never thought of a word as ugly, but... You know, I've never thought that much about Impactful. I don't use it very often. I can't imagine the last time I used it, but it doesn't bother me like it bothers you. It doesn't bother me like Realtor does.
1: Right. And that's in some ways exactly the point. My brain has latched on to Impactful and decided that it is ugly. And so for the moment, I have opted out. I've decided I'm not going to use it. But it doesn't give me the right, if a student uses it in an essay, to say it's wrong, because it's a new word, it's happening. If you look at trends in the language, it's becoming ever more popular, because there are a lot of people like you who aren't thinking about it, find it useful, so they're using it. In other words, I have a peeve, I've owned it, but it doesn't mean that I'm right. It just means that I don't like it. And so then you think, okay, what do I do with that? Does that mean that I opt out? But particularly if you're a teacher or you're someone who is based on a cover letter deciding should this person get this job or not, and you see impactful, that would not be a good way to decide if someone should have that job. Or if they say realtor in a way that you don't like, (laughs) that would also probably not be a good reason to say, I don't think you should have this job because there's, Lots of variation, and pronunciations change over time. Your example made me think of, there's a wonderful quote, it's about 150 years ago, about the pronunciation of balcony. And the person says, the pronunciation balcony just makes me sick. Because, <laughs> I know, because the word had been borrowed in from Italian, and in Italian the stress is on the second syllable, so it would be balcony." But in English, we often like to have the stress on the first syllable, so it became balcony. And this person found that pronunciation just awful. Sickening, in fact. People have pointed out other interesting pronunciation variants to me. For example, is it lackadaisical or laxadaisical?
0: What is It's lackadaisical.
1: It is. <laughs> but many, many people say laxadaisical. Or I'll just give you one more, because I could do this all day long, but it does entertain me. Which is, if you go to the drugstore and your doctor has phoned in something for you to pick up, what are you picking up?
0: A prescription.
1: Okay, and if you hear what you just said, you said a prescription. But the spelling is P-R-E, a prescription.
0: No, I didn't say per, I said pra, prescri- like P-R-A, prescription. I didn't say okay, prescription. Well,
1: I would say I picked up my prescription like it was P-E-R, and many, many speakers would. So we see these these little shifts in the language, and again, you're talking to a historian of the language, and so I say, well, you know, the word bird used to be brid, and the word third used to be thrid, which actually makes much more sense to have three-thrid than three-third.
0: But I still think... (laughs) And I'm going to stand firm on this, and I'm probably putting too fine a point on it. Realtor is not a three-syllable word. You can't look at the... It isn't like you're mispronouncing it. You're not saying some... You're putting in an extra syllable, and to me, that's wrong. I mean, it's not like it's ever going to be right.
1: You're on shaky ground to say that English spelling needs to correspond with English pronunciation. Because we have some Whopper examples, for example, C-O-L-O-N-E-L.
0: Yeah, but it's always been Colonel. It was never Colonel, and then somebody started saying Colonel, like it's Realtor, and then somebody started saying Realtor.
1: Well, it's always been Colonel in our lifetime.
0: What was it before then?
1: Well, this one is an interesting little oddity about... English, which is that the reason that spelling is so far off is that in the 16th and 17th century, we were borrowing in all these words from other languages, and in this case, English double-borrowed, and we borrowed from Italian, colonello with the L, and we borrowed in from French, colonel C-O-R. And in the end, we standardized the Italian spelling and the French pronunciation.
0: So I'm just going to agree to disagree and just say that that's my, that's my thing, <laughs> that's, like you're impactful. Is, is impactful in the dictionary? Is it a, has it been a word in the dictionary for some time or not?
1: I think at this point you will find it in many standard dictionaries. One thing that is important to think about with dictionaries is that We can think about them as the place that you go to say, is this a real word? Is this an authorized word? If you talk to the editors of dictionaries, what they will say is, we're just trying to keep up with all of you. As you all change the language, if a word, a new word has happened, then we're going to put it in our dictionary because we're trying to be a record of the language. And they recognize that they will always be behind us because we are very creative and we are always changing the language.
0: So it's, it's a tough game because who's keeping up with who? Or is it whom? Right. I don't know. I, a whole <laughs> well,
1: other, that's, a whole,
0: <laughs> that's a whole other problem.
1: That, that is, and I'd be delighted, you know, whom has many stories attached to it too. I think the thing I would want to make sure to say is people can hear me saying this stuff and what they will say, and sometimes they say it to my face, is you have no standards. And you're willing to just say that however people speak is totally fine. What I would say is, as a linguist, I am absolutely going to say that language variation and language change is a natural part of language and that it's really fun to watch how people are changing the language, to look at different pronunciations, different constructions. Texting is also a way to write and it's a way to get things. And the undergraduates I work with really sophisticated texters, I am a really bad texter. They laugh at my texting. And one of the things we do in class is they help me understand all the nuances of what a period means versus an exclamation mark versus dot, 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 which mean totally different things I now know. But I didn't know that.
0: Well, I would like to know that. Let me ask you about that. First, though, let me remind people that I am speaking with Anne Curzan. She is a professor of English, Linguistics, and Education at the University of Michigan, and she teaches a series of online courses in English and Grammar for the great courses. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. All right, so tell me the difference between, in a text, the difference between a period, an exclamation mark, and dot, dot, dot.
1: Oh, so this is great. For young people, when they're texting each other, if we imagine a text that just has the two letters OK, if you just send OK with no punctuation, that would be the equivalent of a neutral, sort of like, OK, capturing that tone. If you type okay with a period, this is serious, potentially angry. And if you type okay dot dot dot, that would be the skeptical okay, like okay, I don't really know what you're talking about, or I think it's a bad idea. What that captures is that what young people have done with texting, you know, they're texting a lot, they don't have facial expression. They don't have tone, but, and therefore, as we all know, lots of miscommunication can happen, which I would guess has happened to you. It certainly happened to me.
0: Sure, <laughs> right, right.
1: Where someone you know, gets your tone wrong. So what young people have done is they have, I like to use the verb repurpose. They have repurposed punctuation to help capture tone, to capture serious tone or the exclamation mark, which is to express excitement or happiness. And it's also why people are using emoticons and emojis, smiley faces, winky faces, the JK to say, just kidding, is that we're trying to use aspects of written language and imagery to do the work that we have when we talk to another person of hearing their tone of voice, seeing that they're smiling, seeing that they're nodding their head, which is really useful context. And people are trying to recreate that on texting.
0: Don't you think, back to when you said that people sometimes accuse you of not having any standards, that in fact, there is, especially in the professional world, there is a correct English. And if you go in and use slang, maybe that's fine, but people judge that. When you say, let me ask you a question, people judge that.
1: So the first thing I want to say is I would not use the word correct. You said there is a correct English. There are formal varieties of English, less formal varieties of English. There are standardized varieties of English. And you're absolutely right that there are different contexts, different work environments where different kinds of English are going to be expected. And we know that wearing a tux to a barbecue not a good idea. So using your formal variety in an informal setting not persuasive, not gonna help you navigate that situation. So there isn't a simple answer to that. I also want to circle back to the axe a question. Historically it is as old as ask and there is a good chance that actually historically that axe turned into ask. And in English axe was the high form for a long time. If you look at Chaucer, in the Wife of Bastail, he has Axe a question, A-X-E. And through the 16th century, Axe was actually the high form. And then that got turned on its head, and Ask became seen as the standard form. And there's a lot of judgment about Axe a question. That is not about language. That's about speakers. That's lots, and this is a point that linguists make, which is, when we're judging language, we're judging speakers. And it's a way that people discriminate against other people.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess it is. I mean, people judge people by how they use the language. And, and as language changes, it seems that in every person's mind, it's wrong until it's right. And, and until it's right, it's wrong.
1: So, yeah, so part of that can be it's a new form and I judge it, and others can be it's a form used by a group of people and I've decided that their language is not as correct.
0: Right, right.
1: There's nothing about, if you take the form X, there's nothing about that pronunciation that is wrong in any linguistic sense. There's nothing wrong with it. You have the S and the K changed places. And one of the examples that I will sometimes give is, if you look on a keyboard, if you hit Shift 8, there's a little star thing And I don't know how you pronounce that word.
0: Asterisk? I'm sorry, asterisk.
1: Okay, well, so two things just happened there. At first you said asterisk without an S, and then you said asterisk with an S. Asterisk is how it's spelled. I actually, if I'm not monitoring my speech very carefully, I will say asterisk. My K and S, it's not that I've dropped the S, my K and S have changed places much the way that ask and axe. So you have a K and an S that have changed places. But people don't judge me harshly, as far as I know, when I say asterisks.
0: Well, but linguistics aside, in the real world, people do make judgments about how people speak. They make judgments about people's accents. They make ju- judgments about people's uh, pronunciation. They just do. That's what people do. And to not like that is fine, but but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen.
1: Yes, I want people to know... Well, I want people to know a couple things. One is, you may get judged if you say, ax. The other thing that I want the people who are judging is to say, that is discriminatory. That to judge people for saying, ax, instead of ask, you shouldn't do that. So it, for me, it goes both ways. One way, you put all the burden on the speaker who is using a non-standard form or a new form and say, you need to accommodate. You need to accommodate the prejudices out there of what people think are right and wrong. And certainly, it is helpful to know that so you can navigate the world. But I'm not willing to stop there. I also want to say, for all of us who have our peeves, we also need to educate ourselves so that we aren't judging people unfairly for things we shouldn't be judging them for.
0: Well, but that's unfair according to you, But if people are going to say ax instead of ask, they're essentially trying to change the language. And change like this never comes without conflict and struggle and pushback. So if you're going to try to change the language, you're going to get pushback from it. You may win, but you're still going to get people who don't approve. and And that just is. There is one change going on right now in the language that's happening seemingly quickly is the gender neutrality of the language, do you think that will stick and that that will work?
1: It already has worked. I've actually done research on this. If you look at, for example, on an airplane, we talk about flight attendants. When you look at who fights fires, it's firefighters. Who drives the car with the siren, it's a police officer. That we actually have already, in strikingly successful ways created gender neutral language and often it wasn't with person that for you know people were thinking it was going to be a chairperson well it's not usually a chairperson it's just a chair that we've decided to have the chair of the committee and to have a flight attendant Um, the one there is a person word which is spokesperson you'll hear that Uh, but we have male carriers it's interesting to look around we have actually found a lot of gender neutral options in the language for professions.
0: Are there any that don't seem to be budging? Freshmen. Yeah, right.
1: But I actually, here at the University of Michigan, a lot of us are now using first-year.
0: Well, this is fun, and, and as you might be able to tell, I'm a fan of the English language and what people do or don't do to it, so I enjoy the conversation. And Curzan has been my guest. She's a professor of English, linguistics, and education at the University of Michigan, and she teaches a series of online courses in English and grammar for The Great Courses. And there's a link to her Great Courses page in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, Anne.
1: Thanks, Mike. This is a really fun conversation.
0: Isn't it interesting and frustrating how it is so difficult to make changes in your life? And the bigger the change, it seems, the harder it is to make it. Even if it's the best thing you could possibly do for yourself, making a change is difficult. Well, maybe there is a better way to approach change that can make it a little easier and more manageable. That is something Greg Clunas has spent a lot of time studying. Greg is the host of the podcast, Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. And he also has a new book out, not coincidentally called, Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. Hi Greg, welcome. Thank you so much for
2: having me. It's an absolute honor.
0: Sure. So why is change so hard? From looking at the research and and all you've done in this subject, what in a big picture way is the reason change is so difficult?
2: It's hard because we logically want to, but we subconsciously don't change represents loss of, of your identity, loss of who you currently are. And it seems small, right? Something as simple as, uh, the way that you get out of bed in the morning, like which leg you swing out first, like those things are tiny, but they add up to sort of create this identity, this version of yourself that that you uh, recognize. And in changing those things, you lose a piece of that person. Now, even if that change is good and for the better, you're still feeling the loss on a subconscious level. And so we sort of resist it because we don't want to deal with that. The way to, to stimulate that change and make it easier is to become consciously aware of what that identity is and what it is we're sort of fighting against when we try to make those changes. Um, and, and as long as you become consciously aware of it, it doesn't necessarily like become a snap of your fingers and now you're a different person. But it does become easier to manage and plan for.
0: Well, it would seem that that, based on what you just said, that w- one of the weapons to use in in accomplishing your change is being pretty clear on why you want to change, because that could could sustain you when you're trying to fight the fight that you just described.
2: Absolutely, I mean the the why is the the emotional driver. It's the thing that can override that emotional fear. And so, one of the things that I like to do for myself is once I've figured out what that deep personal why is, what that, that reason for this change looks like, and it might be something like, uh, changing my day to day habits because that's going to create more revenue in my business, which will allow me to create a better life for my family, like that sort of, uh, emotional attachment, um, putting it in front of myself as much as possible. So, uh, whether that is in the basic form of there's a sticky note with that goal written out and the why behind it, Or, uh, which is the case uh, a friend of mine does this, a lot of his why has to do with his daughter. And so every single day when he sees her, he's reminded of that big why and and the reason for why he's trying to to change his life. And that sort of keeps him on track when he may have stumbled without that reminder.
0: Do you suppose that, is there any research that would indicate that, that people try to change for the wrong reason and that's why they fail?
2: Yeah, this sort of practice every single year of New Year and New You, uh, creating resolutions and uh, sort of trying to stimulate change based around this time of year. It's become a cultural activity and a cultural norm and this thing that we all sort of do together But the problem with that is that there is no emotional why. Oftentimes it's purely a change made from a logical place like, hey, that sounds like a good goal. And it's that time of year, so I'll set that goal. Uh, There is no emotional deep reason for that choice. Or if there is, we haven't taken the time to identify it and, and name it.
0: Well, of course, it always seems that change is easier when, you know, catastrophe strikes. You know, when you yeah. have the heart attack, then maybe you're you're more willing to change your diet. Uh, you know, when, when you've had the car accident, maybe you're more willing to wear your seatbelt that you didn't wear before. But it's too bad that it takes that for so many people to mm-hmm. actually facilitate, hey, well, maybe I need to do something different.
2: Yeah, this is... One of the the things that I'm so endlessly curious about, and I talk about my father, the massive change that he made in his life in a very short period of time. Uh, I'm talking, he had smoked for 50-something years straight, always struggled to quit, and then within a two-month window after being diagnosed with lung cancer, he, he quit uh, cold turkey. And it always struck me, as like to this day, it's on my mind is, how is that possible? How is it possible that somebody who receives that kind of diagnosis or has a, a certain sort of serious event happen can flip this switch all of a sudden and, and the change just becomes instant? And my theory, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Mike, I don't know the the solid answer. My theory, based on what I saw with my dad and, and stories I've read since uh, from this curiosity, is that there is some mechanism in us for survival. And if there is an opportunity for us to, to, to come out on the other side, maybe getting hurt, maybe getting scraped up, maybe, uh, being in a, a not great place, but we're still alive. Uh, that drive almost Overrides the innate fear of losing our identity. It almost overrides like that that fear that's keeping us where we are because it becomes the lesser of two evil situation. Like, would you rather lose a piece of your identity or would you rather die? And and it's a mu- like it's a pretty clear choice which one your your subconscious is is going to choose because it wants to keep us here and and have us sort of go through our our day to day lives. So that's my theory, and and it's uh, it's something that has become very personal to me in trying to understand why uh, these life or death situations often produce that kind of result. But uh, I'll be honest in saying that I I just don't know the answer yet.
0: Yeah, because it does seem uh, otherwise pretty typical that people try and fail and put it off and procrastinate and, you know, I'll change my diet tomorrow, uh, but not today. Cause there's, you know, chocolate cake for dessert tonight. Yeah, and, right. and, you know, it's always later, later, later until that, that big thing happens. It'd be nice to be able to figure out how to uh, short circuit that and, and make the change mm-hmm. because y- this is a good time to make the change.
2: Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just the ability to sort of uh, flip that switch whenever, whenever we need it and tap into those re, uh, resources. Um, and I think maybe the closest that I've been able to come to it is when you remind yourself every day that life is short and that we don't know when we're going to go. And I live in uh, New York City. Um, and one of my biggest fears, and it's a little irrational, but it's definitely happened, uh, is somebody pushing me in front of a subway. Uh, now, is that likely to happen? Probably not. Uh, it, is it possible? Yes, absolutely. And and so when I I try to remind myself of the fact that Anything could happen at any point and I may not be here tomorrow. And so if that's the case, then today is really my only chance to do whatever it is. Like this is the only guaranteed chance that I have is right in this moment right now. Um, and, and so if it makes sense to, I'm, I try to make sure that I, I force myself to do it in that moment when I can.
0: So what's the prescription here? The title of your book indicates what the prescription is. but but. If somebody says, well, great. okay, so I I want to change. I don't wait till I I want to wait till I have the heart attack or the car crash. So so how do I do it? What's the what's the step by step process here?
2: Well, it's through accepting that you're going to fail. It's through accepting that every single day you're going to wake up and sometimes you're not going to be able to do whatever thing you said you were going to do for any number of reasons and not beating yourself up from that not uh, uh, making yourself feel bad, just acknowledging, hey, today I didn't do it, tomorrow I'm going to try. And through sort of accepting that, eventually you get this pattern where you wake up every day and you try to do something. And some days you win, some days you lose. Then you wake up the next day, you try again. Um, Over time, the balance shifts. Because maybe in the beginning, you were going to the gym one one day out of every three weeks. But then somewhere in the middle, now you're at three days per week. Then somewhere at the end, you're at your target five days per week. And, and that balance just shifts over a very long period of time of waking up every day and trying to do better, trying to make those changes. Uh, so the, the simple formula that I would boil it down into is step one, figure out what it is you want, what change you want to create in your life, whatever that might be. Step two, identify where you're currently at in relation to that change. And then step three, wake up every single day and grind it out. Try to make it work. Do never beat yourself up. Never uh, uh, make yourself feel bad for it. Just accept reality as it is and try to remove as much of the, the human element as you can in your decision making so that eventually that balance shifts and and you before you know it are the type of person who is doing whatever your goal was.
0: What about changes that, you know, maybe not so life and death changes, but you want to be a writer, but you never mm-hmm. find your, you never seem to find time to sit down and write. And and at some point, maybe, maybe it's time to decide, you know what, maybe this isn't for me.
2: So I would say that it's only ever time to decide that if you genuinely don't like it anymore. Um, outside of that, I see no reason why uh, you, you would ever need to make that decision. So here's what I mean by that. Let's plug it, that goal into the formula. So step one, you want to be a writer. Cool. You've got that figured out. Step two, you do an honest audit of what your life looks like. I would argue that even if it's only three minutes a day, everyone can find some amount of time because there is not a single human on this planet, at least not that I know of who is using every single second of every single day, constantly, always forever. Now, with technology around us, we can find a minute when we're in the bathroom, a minute when we're walking in and out of the office, a minute here and there where we can jot out three words or five words or 10 words. The problem isn't that we can't find the time to write. It's that we feel silly for doing the small things. We feel silly for opening up our notepad and just writing a single word. But that's how you start the process. That's how you get to the point where now you're starting to prioritize it. Now you're maybe pushing off going out to dinner with your friends because you want to spend that hour writing instead and you're doing that Once every other week, like those sacrifices do need to be made eventually. But the only way you get to that place where you're willing to make them is by first starting to gain the identity of being a writer. And you do that by finding those tiny little moments where you're prioritizing it for a minute. You're prioritizing it for that 32nd elevator ride. Like whatever it is, there are these moments in your life that you're just not using. Um, and, and the other cool part about this is that a minute, 12 times a day is still 12 minutes, even if it's broken up. A minute here and there, 60 times a day is still an hour, even if it's broken up.
0: But there are things that people say they want to do. I mean, mm-hmm. how many times since you you have a podcast and you tell people and they go, yeah, I, I'd like to do a podcast. They're never going to do a podcast. They they, they, right. they say they are, but they never are. So it's on their list of things to do that they never, ever get to. It's not that they if they had a minute to take out in the elevator, they're still not going to do anything. So at what point right. do you say, all right, let's cross this off the list because it's weighing me down. I, I really don't plan to do this. And mm-hmm. let's be honest and let's move on.
2: Yeah, and so that goes back to step one, deciding what you actually want, what what change do you actually want to uh, create in your life? Now, I am personally, and this is just what has worked for me, I'm a big fan of trying every single thing that I'm interested in and then throwing it out the minute I, I have the taste for it, the experience for it. Uh, podcasting is something that for a very long time I thought seemed silly. Uh, it's only four or five years ago that I decided to try it and fell in love with it and it became a, a, a great source of expression for me. So I would say that if you're that type of person who just feels the need to try everything, then go down the list and try everything and make that decision quickly as far as, do I like this? Do I not? And am I going to keep doing it or not? If you're the other type of person who has that ever extending list of things that you'd theoretically be interested in, then you do have to sort of prioritize, well, what is it that I actually want? What are you naturally doing? And and what is your your what are you constantly thinking about on a day to day basis when you have those moments? Uh, and anything that isn't in that category gets pushed off the list or pushed onto a maybe one day list.
0: So I have this theory about goals and change and things because I've seen it happen so many times where people have an idea, they want to do something, they're going to change something or make something or invent something or do whatever it is they say they're going to do. And they start the process and then it stops before it gets anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I, my theory is that sometimes people do that because they don't really want to know whether or not it's a good idea or not. So they leave yeah. it in that halfway limbo place where they're working on it, they're not doing really doing much of anything... But it never gets to the point where someone can say no. And that way it just mm-hmm. lives in their head and it lives in their imagination as the what if well, the the world will be wonderful when this is done. But it'll never be done.
2: What if it feels really good. It feels way better than having to face the reality of maybe you're not as good as you thought. Uh, and, and as a personal example, I've I spent a lot of time doing this in my business. Like having that thought process of uh you know i could be doing x amount in revenue like i know what to do for it uh, i'm just not prioritizing it right now or i'm just uh you know building it right now or whatever excuse i'd come up with um and i had to sit down and analyze that and realize well if i'm so capable why am i not doing it well it's because i'm afraid of finding out what that maybe i'm not that capable like i'm afraid of of Actually putting it out into the world and getting punched in the face and realizing, oh, well, I'm not as good as I thought. Uh, and I, I think that it comes back to sort of where we started this conversation of there is a fear of losing that identity. There, There is a fear of feeling like you're good enough to accomplish something and then having to face the reality of maybe you're not.
0: Right, and so maybe it's just a difference in personality because I'm not one of those people typically. I would rather find out. I would rather not look back and wonder what if because I never tried it and regret not trying it. I'd at least like to know that I gave it a shot and yeah,
2: it didn't work, but at least I tried. It's interesting because I find that every successful person that I've spoken to has given that same answer uh, for I and I'm, I'm curious uh, and I'd love to, to turn the tables on you a little bit here where that that comes from like why regret why is that the big driver
0: Hmm. I don't know that I can explain it other than to say that it's just part of who I am it's part of my makeup my personality that I just don't want to not know I don't wanna regret, so I'll try things and that's just who I am.
2: No, that's, that's, that actually uh, tells me you know, quite a lot. Cause I mean, I guess if you really look at it, it is scary cause what if can never be reversed, right? Like it, it's a final, uh, like you didn't do it in that moment. And so for the rest of your life, you have to wonder what if, and it's just sitting on your mind and it's 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 uh, this massive weight on you. But like I said, that is that is an answer Virtually every successful person I've spoken to as a mentor or as a friend has given that as one of their reasons. Um, it, it's just fascinating to to keep hearing it over and over again.
0: Well, there's no doubt that change is hard, whether you're trying to accomplish a goal or whether you're trying to eliminate something out of your life. But I think you've, you've helped to clarify the process and perhaps make it a little easier. Greg Clunas has been my guest. His book is Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. His podcast is also called Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. There is a link to his book and a link to his podcast in the show notes. Thanks, Greg. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me. So is it better for kids to question authority or should they follow the rules? Well, there certainly is a lot to be said for doing what you're told, but there may be a downside to being a rule follower. It seems that kids who question and have a problem with authority make more money later in life. Over 500 people were questioned, first in 1968 at the age of 12, and then again at the age of 62. As kids, they answered 108 questions about their daily thoughts. They later discovered that the kids who had less respect for rules and parental authority earned more money later in life than those who were the rule followers, regardless of their intelligence or socioeconomic status. They also surveyed the teachers of those kids and found that kids who were more studious also tended to make more money as adults, regardless of their feelings about authority. And that is something you should know. Hey, you're on Twitter, right? Well, so are we. Come check us out there. We're at somethingysk. At somethingysk. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.